0: It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January thirteenth, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And first this week, an apology. An apology for that horrible audio last week. Somehow I managed to get one of the inputs set just a little too high. Well, no a lot too high, and I didn't notice it until after the recording was complete, and fortunately by that time I didn't have enough time to do the recording again, so I had to put out a substandard recording. I certainly hope that won't happen again. In part, the problem is that digital recording has no real headroom. Headroom is the area above 100% modulation where analog media will still produce sometimes an acceptable signal as long as you don't go too far above 100%. Digital recording, once you hit 100%, you've used all the bits that are available. There are no more bits once you hit 100% on digital, anything above that clips, and that's what you heard last week, the sound of audio clipping. You won't be hearing that this week. In fact, I've changed the process a bit. I am intentionally undermodulating the recording, and during the production process, I can bring the audio level back up to normal. So, the audio should sound a lot better this week than it did last week. And with perhaps an apology to Microsoft and the world's airlines, Google Earth can take me just about anywhere I want to go. At least, virtually. And given the state of airlines these days, that's maybe about the only way I do want to go somewhere. I hadn't gotten around to installing the latest version of Google Earth, but recently I received a note from a New Zealand listener That happened in December. This is a man who just happens to have the same surname as my paternal grandmother. Well, I decided to see if Google Earth could show me where he lived. I downloaded the new version, installed it, and in less than five minutes, found myself hovering over his house. Now, Google Earth is an enormous time waster. But it can also be a lot of fun. Just about everybody starts by sneaking a peek at their own neighborhood. But first, I decided that I needed to look up the location of a friend who's on a slow dial-up connection and can't use Google Earth. Because he lives in farm country, I expected not to be able to see very much. Google tends not to pay for high-res images of areas that have a preponderance of agriculture. So the low-level image is virtually useless. However, up at about 26,000 feet, at least the pattern of the neighborhood was more clear. Now, I live in a suburban area, and oh, by the way, if you want to see any of these images that I'm talking about, they are, of course, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. I live in a suburban area, and I took a look at my own house from about a 1,000 feet above terrain. When I moved back to about 5,000 feet above terrain, I realized that the images are relatively recent, within about the last six months. I could determine an approximate date for the aerial view by examining some areas around where I live. Some construction that is currently underway had not yet started on the photo, and some construction that is finished was shown in the aerial view as in progress. But when you look at the nation's major cities... You really see what Google Earth can do. Take a look at New York City. If you have Google Earth installed, take a look at New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. Or go to the TechBiter Worldwide website and you can take a look at New York. An urban area such as New York often enables you to see a tilted view so that you're instead of looking straight down, you're looking from an angle. And Google Earth provides 3D building views. Through an association with Wikipedia, Google Earth often is able to show images of the neighborhood. And again, in some of the very largest cities, it can show you actual street views. Not in real time, of course, but views of the area. And even for smaller towns, people can contribute images. While I was in New York, I flew uptown to an area that I know pretty well, West 120th Street in Harlem. I often stay there when I'm in the city. I was able to see, actually, the street and the block on which I stay. Tiring of Harlem, I decided to move east. Quite a bit east. Red Square, Moscow, Russia. Flight time, about 15 seconds. And if you think New York City has a lot of picture sites, just imagine how surprised I was to find literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of picture sites all over Moscow. And then I activated some of the extra photo options that Google Earth makes available. More pictures. It would be easy, very easy, to spend several hours just wandering virtually around Red Square. But at that time, I decided that I had to head back to Columbus. So I poked around Columbus a little bit, noticed that I could review printed references to the city, and I think that's new found a couple of references that date back to before the Civil War. Unfortunately, those links didn't work. This is still experimental, still beta. It's always disappointing when something like this doesn't work as expected, but hardly surprising. But I found another literary link. Tried that one from a time just before the Civil War, and that one worked. It was a book that had been scanned, and if I wanted to, I could read the entire book for free online. So I said it's extremely easy to waste several hours just playing with Google Earth and all the additional features that are now available inside Google Earth. But is it really wasted time? For me, spending time this way is a lot like wandering through a library or a bookstore just waiting for serendipity to strike, and usually it does. What you learn from spending time wandering around through time and space at random on Google Earth certainly doesn't follow any kind of structured curriculum, but learning, after all, is learning. Whenever I'm wandering around like that, I invariably find stuff to download save on my hard drive. You'd think the hard drive would be getting full. And about once a quarter, I go through all of my email files, purge the files that I know I will never need again, The most recent purge happened in late December. I deleted just under 800 megabytes of email, but that left nearly 18,000 messages in my live email file. In iTunes, I have more than 20,000 selections now, some just two or three minutes long. Others, such as New York Fire Department transmissions from September 11, 2001, run for hours I can keep all of these files because I have nearly a terabyte of data storage capacity. That's a number that was unimaginable when I purchased my first hard drive. It was back in the 1980s. You've heard about it before. 16 megabytes, about $1,200. To put 800 megabytes of discarded email in perspective, that's about 80 times the size of that original IBM PC hard drive. I try to keep information organized in a logical manner. All of my digital photographs are on drive D, not for digital. Drive D for data. I have a directory called digital cameras. The images are in there divided up by year and then by event. Websites are also on D, data, in the websites directory. Music. Well, music was all on the D drive until recently, in an iTunes directory, but I decided to move it off to drive M, which is where most of the multimedia stuff is. And then there's the website from the office. Well, I could keep that in the directory with the other websites on drive D, but instead I keep it on drive N, because it's really just a backup of what I have at the office. Now, what about video work files? Somewhere on D? No. they're on M? In the multimedia? No. Work files would be on drive N. File after file after file, hundreds of thousands of files on this computer. And that's just my own stuff. This planet has six billion people. And some days, it seems that just about every one of them is creating video, audio, or text for the Internet. It used to be that content was managed by kings, priests, or bosses at work. Common folks did the heavy lifting, watched and read what they were told to. In fact, I remember back in the olden days, when I was going to college, the communications classes discussed gatekeepers. Those are the people who controlled access to the communications machinery. Today, gatekeepers have been all but vanquished. The networks, of course, still have their nightly newscasts, but there is no longer an Uncle Walter Today, anybody with about $1,000 to spare can produce high-quality video, or with far less money, high-quality audio. The audio I create for the podcast varies little from what I used to create for broadcast. But now, all I need is an internet connection. No need for audio consoles that cost thousands of dollars. No need for transmitters that cost tens of thousands of dollars and definitely no need for arrays of towers that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. New Yorker magazine journalist Abbot Joseph Liebling wrote, Freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. The first chink in that armor was the word processor. In fact, the first chink in that armor, back in the Soviet days, in Russia, was called samizdat, self-publishing. Except self-publishing in those days involved people creating multiple copies, with carbon paper oftentimes, on typewriters, of entire books. Well, then we got to desktop typesetting. And then the Internet really blew the doors off. You don't need a press. Traditional journalism is becoming all but irrelevant And now, as empowering as that is, I sometimes wonder if it's really best for the country and the world. In the past, editors, granted they did have biases, at least asked hard questions before they printed things, before they used them on the air. Today, we still have some real journalists, but we have a lot of political hacks, such as Matt Drudge, for example, and entertainers like Rush Limbaugh, who masquerade as commentators presenting the news, Unfortunately, a lot of people believe that those folks are presenting facts when they are not. TechBiter Worldwide is heard around the world, literally. I have heard feedback from every continent, well, maybe not Antarctica. That's something that would never have happened, even with WTVN's Good Signal, which covers all of Ohio and portions of the surrounding states and, at night, some parts of Europe. WTVN's signal doesn't reach Australia, most of Europe, or Asia. The podcast does. And what's interesting is you could do it too. If you don't have a decent microphone, you can get one for less than $100. Something like 2 billion computers are connected to the Internet. TechBiter Worldwide is one of about 1 million podcasts currently in production. And there are more than 100,000 video podcasts already in place. Various video websites see more than 200,000 new videos every single day. Just in the U.S., there are 36 million digital cameras, 50,000 hours worth of amateur video content created every month. Not all of that is posted to the Internet, of course. A lot of that is just kept at home. About 25 trillion email messages were sent in 2007. About 75% of that was spam, but, but still, that's an awful lot of messages. So how much stuff do you have? I save web links. They're small. But I also save images that I run across and like. I save audio clips. I save video clips. I may never look at these things again, but I save them simply because I can. There's room for them. What about you? This is probably a really good time to be a Seagate or a verbatim. There certainly is a demand for hard drives and for DVD and CD blanks. The only problem is that these devices are now seen as commodities, and the differentiation between verbatim and Memorex is considered to be not much more than price. That isn't right, of course, but it is conventional wisdom. So how many times has this happened to you? You're ready to use some of that content you've saved. You can't find it. What do you do? A Google search. You grab another copy. You download it. You do what you're going to do with it. Watch it, listen to it, show it to someone. And then you save it. Now you've probably got another copy on the machine. The research organization IDC recently reported that while content and information is growing rapidly, only about 25% of what is downloaded is material that is being downloaded to that machine for the first time time tv networks movie studios professional graphic designers all have big and expensive content management software that's the stuff that helps them quickly find the files they need but if you're a small business person or just a homeowner with a computer you don't have something like that the problem is that these systems cost a lot And it's not just buying the content management system. It takes a lot of time and effort to set them up and maintain them. So the person who develops a versatile, scalable, digital asset management system, that person is going to become very wealthy. Existing document management systems offer good search engines, and photo software allows tags that can be applied to images, but regular people just save files. They don't take the time to create the metadata. What we need is something that automatically recognizes music, photos, videos, DVDs, TV programs, documents, presentations, and then somehow produces its own accurate metadata. Apple's iTunes tries to do this, gets it right some of the time, Unfortunately, about once a month, iTunes claims that my library file is corrupt and has to create everything from the XML file that it creates. Now, that would be okay, but it takes about half an hour, and some of the information I want is always missing if I use the XML file. I found that it's actually better when I get that error message from iTunes is to just delete both the ITN file, and the XML file, and tell iTunes to re-import everything again. I lose all of the information about when something was last played, but at least that way I'm still able to keep track of podcasts. I do have to subscribe to them again, but at least it retains links to the previously downloaded files, while using the XML file loses both the subscriptions and any reference to the files. Storage And classification, big problem. No clear or easy solution, but I have a feeling there are some people working on it. In nerdly news, lots of odds and ends this week. Some from the Consumer Electronics Show, most from far further afield. It is time again, or it has been time again this past week for that insanity known as the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, in Las Vegas. At the show, Bill Gates was the keynote speaker, something he's done before, but this is going to be his last keynote speech as a Microsoft employee. By this time next year, Gates will be retired. If you have downloaded anything from Microsoft's website lately, you've probably heard of Silverlight. Gates announced at CES that NBC will use Silverlight this summer to provide more than 3,000 hours of online video coverage from the Olympics in Beijing. Big win for Microsoft, and that could prove quite interesting for NBC with the Olympics making 3,000 hours of Olympics coverage available on your computer. How about an M phone? Will Microsoft build one? Gates says no. Microsoft's role in the mobile phone arena is going to be limited to software, specifically the Windows Mobile program. Gates pointed out that Microsoft has partnerships with Samsung, Motorola, and other companies that build phones. But Microsoft also says that its Zune is becoming an increasingly tough competitor for the Apple iPod. (laughs) Well, regardless of what Microsoft, Creative, or any other manufacturer of portable MP3 players might say, the market continues to vote for iPods. You may recall that in last year's election, I served as a poll worker. And it was clear to me that security at the polls is pretty good. The machines are locked up until precinct workers set them up early in the morning. They are monitored all day, and then memory cards and counts are returned to the Board of Elections. So far, so good. Of course, something crooked could happen to the machines before they're delivered, but that would be somewhat difficult. What concerns me, though, is what happens to the votes as they move upstream, first to county boards where results are tabulated and where one well-placed person could make a big difference, and then to the secretaries of state's offices. In fact, there are already questions this year about vote tampering in New Hampshire. Most precincts in New Hampshire, about 80% of them use Diebold machines. 20% of the voters vote on paper ballots. Now, other factors could be at play here but this is interesting it seems that clinton beat obama by about five percent in precincts that were counted by machine but obama beat clinton by about four percent in precincts that were counted by hand on its face that is at least suspicious after you vote this year cross your fingers You know, in the movies, when the FBI asks for a wiretap, there's no mention of money changing hands. It seems, and I guess this really shouldn't be a surprise, that phone companies do expect to be paid for wiretaps. And when the FBI forgets to pay its phone bills, those phone companies shut down the wiretaps. Laura Jakes-Jordan, writing in My Way News, notes that a Justice Department audit accused the FBI of lax oversight of money used in undercover investigations. One agent actually stole $25,000 of money that should have been used to pay these phone bills, according to that audit. The 87-page audit said more than half of the 990 bills to pay for telecommunications surveillance in five FBI field offices were not paid on time. In just one office... Unpaid costs for wiretaps from one phone company totaled $66,000. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't yet downloaded Service Pack 3 for Microsoft Office 2003, you might want to wait a bit. SP3 disables support for some older file formats. Now, by disables support for... What I mean is that you will not be able to open antique Word, Excel, Lotus 1, 2, 3, Quattro, or Corel Draw documents. Why? Well, Microsoft says the older formats are less secure than the new ones. Okay, that's true. But what if you have some trustworthy old files in your archive and you occasionally need to open those? Well, there's a way to do it, of course. Just download Microsoft Knowledge Base article KB938810. Page after page of complicated steps. Come on, Microsoft. Couldn't SP3 have started with a clear, plain English explanation of what you were planning to do and then allow users to choose whether they want this security feature or not? The way things are now, users won't know anything has changed. They won't see any change until they need to open one of those antique files, possibly in the midst of a business or personal emergency. That's when you'll be told that Word or Excel can't open the file. You might want to keep that installation of OpenOffice handy. Well, thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January thirteenth, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you want, send an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.